morning. Have you ever wondered what people think about you? You ever wondered, you know, what people are saying about you, what people might be thinking about you? I'm sure if you're honest with yourself, you would say yes. I know a lot of our young people are about to go back to school, and they're going to go into their new classes, or or some of us are going off to college and be sitting with new people, and and there might be a cute boy or cute girl sitting down there, and you might think, well, I wonder what they think about me. Those of us who are adults in our careers, there are times I'm sure that we're concerned with what other people think about us when it comes to performance review time. We want to know what our boss thinks about us. Did you know that there was a time when Jesus wanted to know what people thought about him? And he asked his disciples about what people were saying about him. If you look at Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 13 through 15, says, when Jesus came to the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? By this time, Jesus' popularity had begun to grow. He'd been traveling around the area, he'd been performing miracles, he'd been uh, teaching and healing people. By this time, he had fed a couple thousand people with a few fish and loaves of bread. And by this point, he had begun to have some popularity and some notoriety in the area. And when he comes to Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, "What, what are people saying about me? Who are people saying that I am? And they tell him, well, well some say that you're, you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elias or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus poses the question to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? Of all the questions that have ever been asked, this is the most important question that has ever been posed. Who do you say that I am? Jesus am? And this is a question that's generated a lot of debate ever since Jesus posed this question to his disciples 2,000 years ago. This is a question that generates a different answer even among religious people today. You could go into many different places and you could get many different answers to this question. You could go into the internet, you could Google who was Jesus, and you would get a million different search results. For that question, you could go into any bookstore and and find different books that explain or, or, or talk about who Jesus was. You can go into universities and classrooms and get a multitude of different answers to this question. You could go even into different churches and different religious organizations and get different answers to this question. And I'm here to tell you today that there is no more important question that has ever been posed. And I'm here to tell you today that there is only one acceptable answer to this question. So this morning, we're going to discuss some answers to that question. 
There are some people that say that Jesus was nothing more than a prophet or a good moral teacher. Many people who can't deny that, historically speaking, Jesus lived, will say that he was a good man. Someone who traveled around and had a lot of interesting teachings about moral living and and loving your neighbor, but he was nothing more, nothing less than some sort of self-help guru who helped teach a few things and helped spread this message of loving your neighbor in the area and, and, and gain some notoriety in first century Israel. Some might even admit that he had powers to do some miracles, but he was nothing more than a prophet. This is what many people were saying in Jesus' day. We read in in Matthew 16 that there were some people that were saying that he was John the Baptist or Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets raised from the dead. People were saying that he was perhaps someone special, someone who had powers to do miracles, maybe even someone sent from God. Did you know that that is what Islam says about Jesus? Muslims teach that Jesus was a messenger of God, born of a virgin, with power to do miracles. But they don't believe that he was the Son of God. Others would say that Jesus was a liar. That he knew that he wasn't anything divine. That he knew that he really wasn't sent from God, that he lied, that he made these claims that he was the Messiah. People might say that he manipulated the situation uh, that in, in the circumstances and, and made it look like he was the Messiah, that he was some sort of power-hungry Jewish carpenter who saw the opportunity to gain fame and some following, and that he was lying about who he was. The Pharisees of Jesus' day accused him of being a liar. In John, the 8th chapter, we find a conversation that Jesus had with with a crowd of people that had just tried to stone an adulterous woman that Jesus defends. And in John, the 8th chapter, in the 12th verses, Jesus made the claim that he was the light of the world, and that if you followed him, you, you would have the light of life. And when the Pharisees heard this, they called Jesus a liar. They said that his record or what he was saying was not true. And that sort of opinion lingers today. And you could find many people that would say that Jesus was nothing more than a liar. Others would say that Jesus was crazy, that he was a lunatic, that he had delusions of grandeur. He was like one of these people that we might see that gather some sort of cult following, but but really wasn't anything divine. Some even said that he was demon-possessed, that he wasn't in his right mind. Again, there in John the 8th chapter, towards the end of this conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus is telling these people that he came from his Father in heaven, and if they were the children of God, then they would listen and they would follow him. And when the Pharisees hear this, they think that he must be crazy or to, to, to say something like that. <clears throat> and again, you would find that opinion about Jesus today. After the disciples gave Jesus some opinions about what they were hearing about who Jesus was, Jesus asks them the million-dollar question that we have been talking about when he says, but who do you say that I am? 
And there's one more answer to that question that I want for us to look at and consider for the rest of our time here this morning. And I don't know how you would answer that question this morning, but I do know how I would answer that question. And I know how the Apostle Peter answered that question when he said in Matthew, the 16th chapter and the 16th verse, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter answers Jesus' question by saying, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And I'm here here to tell you today that I believe with all of my heart that Peter had the correct answer to that question. Jesus of Nazareth wasn't a liar. He never uttered a single false word. Jesus was not a lunatic. He knew exactly who he was and what he came to do. He was more than just some good moral teacher or some prophet. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I believe that there is ample logical evidence to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. And I think that there's more things that we could talk about than than what what we have time to discuss this morning, but I want for us to point out three facts that prove without question that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, that he is the Son of God. The first of those is that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. If you go back through the Old Testament, you'll find somewhere around 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah. And these prophecies were a wide range of different things. We studied them for several years here on Wednesday nights. And they talked about different things that the Messiah would come and do, his mission where he would be born, events that would happen in his life, all these different things, 300 and some odd different things that were predicted about the Messiah. And these things were predicted hundreds and hundreds, and in some cases, thousands of years before the Messiah came. And why do you think that, that all these prophecies were given? What was the point of all these prophecies in the New Testament? I think that there there was more than one reason that the prophecies were given, but I think that the main reason that they were given was to provide God's people with what they should look for, the identifying characteristics of the Messiah. They were given so that when you saw all these things in one person, you would know without any doubt that this person was the Messiah. I once read a story about an American spy during the Cold War that needed to arrange a meeting with the CIA. And this guy had never met face-to-face with the CIA folks, and, and they never talked directly, so the two groups didn't know what each other looked like. Um, and so that when they arranged to meet, they set up six different things that this guy would do. You know, he would wear a certain hat, he'd be reading a certain newspaper, he'd be sitting on a bench, all these, these different things, these five, six different things that, the, that he would be doing. And the CIA knew that if this one person was doing six things, that it would be an impossibility that it could be anyone else if he was just doing these six different things. And there were over 300 prophecies 
about the coming Messiah. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every single one of them. An MIT professor, Dr. Peter Stoner, conducted a study of the probability of one man fulfilling just some of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. He wanted to know if one person did all of these things, how sure could we be? What are the odds that one person could do these things and be the Messiah? And he looked at just eight of the prophecies, and and he calculated the, the probability of each individual event. And you know, for those of you who know me, I'm a, I'm a, my wife thinks I'm a professional nerd. That's my career. I'm a professional nerd. I'm an engineer. Um, and so th- these types of things really interest me uh, and maybe a few of other people here. Uh, so this guy, he looked, at, he looked at eight different prophecies, and he calculated the odds. And we aren't going to go through all of these, but you could see these eight different things that, uh, that he looked at. Where he was born, a forerunner, riding on a donkey, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver, so on and so forth. And then based on the probability of those eight individual events, he calculated what the probability of one man would be of fulfilling all eight of them. And he submitted this study to the American uh, Scientific Affiliation who confirmed that his calculations were dependable and accurate. So what are the odds of one man doing all of these things? And he calculated that the odds of one man doing all eight of these things would be one with... 17 zeros behind it. In other words, if one man did just these eight things, mathematically speaking, he wouldn't be just a one in a million type guy. He would be a one in 100 quadrillion type person. If he did those things, the chance of him not being the Messiah would be so insignificantly low, so so mathematically low, that no self-respecting mathematician, mathematician, or statistician, could deny that he was who he said he was. And that was just eight of them. What if we figured out what the probability of 48 of those prophecies would be? That would be one with 157 zeros behind it. Stoner concluded in this study that any man who rejects Jesus as the Son of God is rejecting a fact, proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. And I agree with Mr. Stoner, and you should too. Jesus came and fulfilled over 300 prophecies. He perfectly performed everything that the prophecies said that the Messiah would do, and because of that, he proved that he is the Christ the Son of the living God. But for some people, that is not enough. They still won't believe. But there is even further proof that Jesus is the Christ. And the second thing that proves that Jesus is who He said He was is because the tomb is empty. After Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take the body of Jesus and prepare it for burial. They place him in a tomb where he would be for three days. And then early on Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. The stone was rolled back from the grave and Jesus came forth victorious over death 
and he conquers the grave. He ascends to his Father in heaven where he now sits at his right hand and rules as king over his kingdom. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, Jeff, that, that is a, uh, that's a tall tale. You're telling me that he rose from the grave, Jeff. How do I know that? How should I believe that? That seems pretty fanciful, Jeff. I believe that if you objectively look at the story and you look at the situation, you'll find that the only explanation for what happened was that Jesus rose from the grave. The first thing to keep in mind is the measures that the Jews and the Romans took to secure the grave and the situation. If you look at Matthew, the 27th chapter, verses 63 through 66, it says, Now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that deceiver said while he was yet alive, After three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last heir shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way, make, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. The Jews had heard what Jesus said. They heard Jesus say that he would rise from the grave. And in order to prevent his disciples from stealing the body and claiming that Jesus was who he said he was, they asked Pilate to provide guards for the tomb. And these guards weren't Barney Fife from Mayberry. They weren't the security guards uh, at the mall with a flashlight and a whistle. These were most likely Roman soldiers. The most well-trained, the most well-disciplined, best-equipped fighting force in the world at that time. There would have been at least four of the soldiers assigned to a watch duty like this, and they were standing guard at the tomb of Jesus. Also, remember that to seal the tomb, this stone was rolled in front of the entrance of the tomb. And this wasn't some small stone. You could see a picture of of what it might have looked like there. This was a stone that weighed probably somewhere between one and a half and two tons. And when it was rolled in front of a door like that or an opening like that, it would have rolled in a groove in the ground there in front of it. It would have settled in a, there was a V shape at the bottom of those grooves. So it would have settled, gravity would have taken hold of it, and it would have rested in a V shape uh, groove there in front of the door. It would have been easy to roll the stone in front of the door, but incredibly, incredibly difficult to move it out of the way. And I want you to remember who some of the people were that were the first to testify that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. It wasn't his apostles who initially said this. They were actually skeptical at first. Instead, the people that couldn't deny that Jesus wasn't in the tomb anymore were actually the people that opposed him, the Roman guards and the Jewish leaders. If you look in Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 11 through 15, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. 
And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. After Jesus bursts forth from the tomb, some of the guards go to the Jewish leaders and tell them what has happened. And they say that the tomb is empty. He's no longer there. That Jesus is risen. And the Jews don't deny it. They don't call these men liars. Instead, they pay them off. And they tell them to go and say that Jesus' followers came and stole the body. The guards are hesitant because they know if they get back, this gets back to the leaders, that, that they let someone steal the body, the, the guards would be put to death. But the Jewish leaders tell them not to worry. They would take care of it. They would smooth things over and the guards wouldn't be harmed. They don't deny that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. They can't deny it because Jesus isn't there. They just try and cover it up. So if the people couldn't deny that the body of Jesus was no longer in the tomb, there has to be some explanation, right? There has to be a reason why the body's not there. Some might say, well, Jesus' followers came and they stole the body, right? <clears throat> but this couldn't have happened. We already talked about the steps that the, the Jews in Rome took to secure the tomb. The followers of Jesus, were, they were scared men that ran after Jesus was captured. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus when he was questioned. The rest of them ran. So you're telling me that... that just a few hours later, these men were ready to go and, and fight off these guards and move the, move the stone out of the way and take the body of Jesus. At this time, they were scared fishermen and tax collectors. They couldn't have taken the body. It doesn't make sense. There are some theories that, that for some reason, that the Jews could have taken the body. But again... That doesn't make sense. If the Jews would have taken the body, wouldn't they have produced the body when Jesus' disciples were later preaching that, that Jesus was raised from the dead? They could have had the body of Jesus and dumped it there in front of Peter there at Pentecost and said, he's, <laughs> he's not risen from the dead. You don't know what you're talking about. And this whole Christianity thing never would have happened. But they couldn't do that because they didn't have the body. And there are still others that would say that, that Jesus escaped from the tomb, the so-called, it's called the swoon theory that some people say, that he really wasn't dead, that, that he was put into the tomb, but he, he, he was injured, he was crucified, and he was hurt real bad, but he was in shock when they put him in there, but eventually he woke up uh, and, and got out of the tomb somehow, right? But if you think about this, this is the most ludicrous of all. We won't take time to go through all of this this morning, but you could see on the screen all these different things that Jesus went through. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was nailed to a cross. He was forced to carry that cross. The, the, the crown of thorns that was placed on his head, spears driven through his side. All of these things. And then he was placed in a tomb with a two-ton stone rolled in front of it. So you're telling me that someone that went through all of this lived and then later escaped. So if it wasn't Jesus' disciples, and it wasn't the Jews, and it wasn't some sort of mistaken burial, and Jesus wasn't really dead, how did he get out of the tomb? Because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And he rose from that grave victorious over death because he conquered every enemy, even the grave, for you and for me. He told the disciples after Peter made his, his confession, he said, And Jesus answering and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He told them that not even the gates of hell, or Hades as the New King James renders it, not even death could hold Jesus and his church, because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But again, there are some people that the prophecies and the empty tomb still aren't enough. They still don't believe. But there is still further evidence. And the third thing that proves that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God, that he is who he said he is, is the lives and specifically the changes in the lives of the people that would follow him. We mentioned a moment ago the state of mind of his, his, his apostles at, just after Jesus had been crucified. They had witnessed this man, their friend, their leader, executed and killed on the cross. This man that they thought was the Messiah, the man that would overthrow Roman oppression, that would restore Israel to its former glory and this man that they had all these hopes on all these all these things that they thought he would accomplish they see him captured and they see him killed and they are disappointed they were they felt defeated there in the days uh, after the cross but what would happen over the course of the next several days weeks and in some cases years to these men Peter would change from a man who would vehemently deny that he even knew Jesus into the man that would preach the sermon at Pentecost just about 50 days later. The rest of the apostles, men who ran at the sight of Jesus being captured, would travel the world preaching the gospel and would die for the cause of Christ. Saul of Tarsus would change from a fanatical persecutor of the church to a man who would preach Christ to kings and he would write much of the New Testament. Why were these men willing to change? Why were these men willing to endure what they went through? Why were these men willing to die for the name of Jesus and his church? Did they die because of a lie? Did they change because of a lie? They were willing to die. They were willing to travel the world. They were willing to give up their lives and preach Jesus because they saw the risen Savior. Because they knew that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. These men saw the first-hand evidence that Jesus had risen from the grave. They saw the wounds in His hands and the scars in his side. They ate meals with him. They spoke with him for 40 days pertaining to things to the kingdom. They saw him ascend to his Father in heaven. And because they saw, they were willing to change. And that power to change people's lives remains today. 
Jesus Christ and His Word can change people. It changes the sinner into a saint. It can recover the alcoholic or the drug addict from their addiction. It can put truth in the mouth of a liar. It can change you and make you a better employee and friend and husband and wife and employee and mother and citizen and person. It can transform and heal your marriages. And it can change who you are. And that power to change is evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. So we come back to this question this morning, but who do you say that I am? And I've told you how some people answer that question. We've spent a lot of time this morning telling you how I answer that question. You remember the verse that we opened with, and when Jesus asked his disciples what people were saying about him, that's sort of what we've been doing this morning. Remember, he looked at his disciples after they had been telling him about all what other people were saying about him, and he looks at them and he says, but who do you, who do you say that I am? He had heard, and I'm sure he knew what people were saying about him. But what he really wanted to know is, what do you, who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? And I'm telling you today that Jesus wants to know from you right now the answer to that question. Who do you say that I am? And he is requiring you to answer that question this morning. And you might be saying, well, hold on a minute, Jeff, hold on. I'm, I'm, I am not going to answer that question. I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not ready to give an answer to that question. I, I, just wait a minute, Jeff. But I'm here to tell you that you are going to answer that question, whether you like it or not. <clears throat> One way or another, you will give an answer to that question right here and right now today. You will either answer that question like Peter did and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, or you will deny Him. And you will either deny Him blatantly, or you will deny Him with your silence and your refusal to answer that question. But you will answer that question. And you might be thinking, well, how do I answer this question? How do I confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? First, if you have never confessed your belief in Jesus Christ, you would make a verbal confession similar to what Peter did. When you're ready to become a Christian, you would verbally confess to God and to to witnesses around you that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. In Romans, the 10th chapter, verses 9 through 10, it says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Based on your belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and based on your conviction to repent of your sins, you would confess your belief in Christ. At the conclusion of this this service, you might come down, and, and I or one of the other brethren will ask you if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And if you make that confession, you would submit yourself to the Lord in baptism, washing away your sins and becoming a child of God and a member of His church. 
But your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord doesn't end when you obey the gospel. As a Christian, we are called to live a life that proclaims to the world that Jesus Christ lives and that he reigns as our king. Galatians, the second chapter in the 20th verse says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we obey the gospel, the old man, the man we once were, is crucified and dies in the watery grave of baptism. And then it is no longer our own will that we follow, but it is the will of God and Jesus Christ that lives in us. We are no longer led by the flesh, but led by the Spirit. We live a life that proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord. We confess Christ and our belief in him through the life that we live. We confess that we know Jesus by a life that reflects him and his character. We confess Christ by submitting our will to his and changing and growing into the person that he wants us to be. We confess Christ through our love and compassion to others. And we confess Christ through teaching others about their Lord and Savior. We confess Christ every day of our lives. But perhaps you have never made that confession of faith. Or maybe you have been living a life that has not been confessing your faith in Jesus. Remember, Jesus is asking you that question right now. Who do you say that I am? And you are the only one that can answer that question. Because for you, it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't matter how I answer that question. It doesn't matter how your mom and dad answers that question. It doesn't matter how the elders and the deacons here, how we answer that question. What matters in the end for you is how you answer that question. And only you can answer this question that Jesus is asking you. Who do you say that I am? This morning you have the opportunity to answer that question and submit your life to God. As we mentioned a moment ago, you have the opportunity to allow your faith to move you to repent of your sins, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and submit to him in baptism. Perhaps you've never done that, and you'd like to do that. We'd be happy to do that with you this morning. Perhaps you have been living a life that hasn't been confessing your love and your devotion to Christ and you'd like the prayers of the church. We'd be happy to do that also. If there's anything we can do, please come as we stand and as we sing. Oh, praise to our